Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is the Curious Anarchy Podcast. Back once again, like the Renegade Master, myself, Curious, aka Jermaine, and Content, aka Marky. How are you, Marky? You well? Good. How are you? It's nice to be back uh, with a proper uh, host and, and interviewer after the uh, week that we've just had with random levels of reporting and interviewing um, for the past seven days. So really nice to be in a place where intellectual and uh, thoughtfulness um, can in a creative way. So lovely to be back and I'd like to welcome people to another edition of The Curious Muse. Oh, curious, curious Um Okay, so on that note, on that note, I just wanted to pick up on uh, this this issue that's been flaring up again in the news in regard to racism in the Ukraine, but also the suggested racism around hate reporting. Um, the comments made about Ukraine in relation to them being, oh, this is Europe. This is not somewhere in the outreaches of Africa or somewhere in the Middle East. The assumption, the assumptions being made have been absolutely tremendous. And so, yeah, let's just acknowledge that as we've just come out of Black History Month in the USA, um, racism is still alive and well. And uh, let's unravel some of the threads. What else have we got on the doors? Well, let's start with what you just said. So there's a couple of things that spring to mind. First of all, going back to when the European Championships were in Russia, um, there were huge problems with racism in in Eastern Europe. Um, And if I'm speaking on behalf of other communities that have come from over 100 years ago, there's always been an issue with racism in in Eastern Europe. Um, Commonly, they they don't seem to understand the issue of racism uh, or the the issue of treating anybody who's not the specific that they are um, particularly well. I mean, this this is changing, but it's still nowhere near, anywhere near it should be. You know, in the western side of Europe, we've had a lot of um, time to uh, try and re-educate our minds to look at it slightly differently. But I think in Eastern Europe, people sort of say, take me as you find me sort of approach. And that's not really acceptable in this day and age. And yet that's how it's always been in those regions. Mm. And and um, I'm sure if you kind of looked into the sort of thinkings of how racism changes, education plays a high part and, and education isn't always that greatly acknowledged in, in certain parts of you know rural communities let's put it like that in in eastern europe um and i'm not trying to be horrible to slating anyone i'm just trying to say that there's a reason why the progression hasn't happened in those areas mm. um but also i think on behalf of people generally um one thing that's happened with this war um, aside from the fact that a lot of reporters that keep saying things like well you know here we're seeing white people with blonde hair being attacked. Aside from that side of it, um, this is the first time we've had a proper televised war. You know, we've never really had a war where camera crews were around to see destruction on the level that we're seeing here. Now, that's not to say there weren't cameras and, you know, places like Syria and, you know, Palestine, etc. Of course, there's, there's, there's cameras, but not on the level 
of reporting you're having in, in, in the Ukraine. Um, and you have to understand that Ukraine, until a week ago, was seen as one of the more developed and advanced sort of cultural centers, certainly of Eastern Europe and, and in a lot of the world, you know, the technologically, environmentally, etc. They were up there with a lot of countries. So it's been the shock of that happening in safe European homes, I think. That's the thing that's, that's woken people up. And as you know, a lot of the conflicts around the world aren't happening in Europe and therefore they're easier to dismiss or not take us seriously. Until the yep. refugees, until the refugees arrive at your doorstep, mm-hmm. and then suddenly all the questions get asked that should have been asked a long time before that, which is what started this and why is it happening and why is it carrying on. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the backdrop to why we're seeing this. I think anyone who has family or had family wouldn't be surprised to hear that there was elements of racism still carrying on, as if it was a hundred years ago. Not um, would be surprised. I think it's a surprise to other people that perhaps are trying to modernize these countries and thinking that they're in a different mindset to how they were. They're not. Um, But also we have to look, we have to take a look at um, what is generating and perpetuating this situation. It is multi-layered, but there are factors that you could say you could see it coming. Let's put it like that. There are factors that we could say five years ago, ten years ago, even twenty years ago, we could see this evolving. Now, let's start. I think a good point to start for everybody really would be the the collapse of the so of the Soviet Union, the collapse of communism in the Eastern Bloc around 1989 which is very recent very recent and what it also suggested to the people of those areas was this was a new phase for them they'd lived under uh under the maths uh, 1920s uh, so so 70 odd years of communism and when we say communism we're talking about a specific type that, that that someone like stalin designed which wasn't really the communism who knows anything about communism would suggest it's communism, but that's fine. Let's not get into that now. But suffice to say, they had 70 years of persecution and one-party state, a lack of democracy, etc. Mm-hmm. And so in 89, there was a cultural sweep of change across Europe. And changes happened. And a lot of countries uh, rejected the yoke of, of the Soviet Union, including Russia but including a lot of the satellite states like Georgia, Ukraine, etc. Yeah. And they were hoping for a bright new world where they could become akin to the capitalist states of Western Europe. That was and the this, this this what does this this involve Yugoslavia? The same. Okay, so so in 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 uh, Russia you had uh, sorry in the Soviet Union you had Stalin and in Yugoslavia they had uh, Tito now Tito was uh, very important in the Second World War where he fought against the fascists against Germany but he was a dictator in that country so that the sub countries such as Croatia and, and Bosnia were still entrapped under the great Yugoslavia so again that all broke down when we had the collapse of, of communism 
because he, mm. Tito was a communist in Eastern Europe, Eastern Germany, they had communism. So all these places changed once you had the collapse of Soviet of the Soviet Union of, of the communism. Right. And these people were expecting to live the lifestyle of people in Spain and Germany and England, etc. They were hoping to become like that. So the starting question would be, if this was what was happening, why was there still a need to have a NATO force? Mm. What, is, what is NATO? NATO was the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was basically an organization of countries that were opposed to communism. They were also about creating unity in Europe. So, if so what means would be my question for that? Well, that's a we can. Well, that's a slightly harder question to answer because, like with all these fabulous ideas, they often break down with the actual practicalities of how you do them. Mm. But and you're right to ask. As I was saying, but what the point I'm saying is, the expectation of people living in those areas would have been some kind of welcoming by the greater yeah. world to say, "Come and join us now that you've sh shed the Welcome yoke of the shackles of communism." Exactly, exactly that. And what happened was, in, certainly in the Soviet Union, they had a huge, uh, what's the word, period of of um, poverty, because okay. the mechanism, well, the yeah. mechanisms of, of of capitalism weren't working, and the former controls of communism weren't working. So there was a there's a vacuum. There was a vacuum. Right. Yeah. And in that vacuum, they would have expected a bit more help from the West. Now, I'm not saying they should or shouldn't have done that. I'm just saying people in those countries would have expected, now that we've shed that yoke, now that we're opening our doors, the lights coming into the rooms, we would have hoped you'd give us a bit more support. And what happened was, in a lot of those countries, and I'm going to say it how it is, and I do apologise if people find this a little bit bland or brash or whatever, because let's be clear what we're talking about. Gangs, criminal gangs took over running the countries. Because there was a vacuum, someone had to accumulate money and produce pro uh, services. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these gangs, who are often affiliated, affiliated to the leaderships of these countries, um, you know, it's a bit like saying to your friends, oh, listen, I'm going to take charge now, but if you want to go and sort of stop that oil train and sell it back to everyone, then, you know, we could do a little deal together. So a lot of that stuff started happening. Right. So when we talk about the oligarchs today, we're talking about people that were organised enough in the vacuum to get loads of money. Right. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm just. I'm thinking about layering this, like in terms of what was going on two years ago. But yeah. Continue. Yeah. Well, it's the same. It's all led to this. I mean, it's been. It's been an evolution. Because also, what we can say as well is that over the past 15 years, everyone's eyes have come away from Russia, have come away from the former so uh, Yugoslavia, etc. Mm -hmm. People have been looking at other conflicts around different parts of the world. Yeah? You know, Afghanistan, Syria, these are the places that have taken people's attention for the part, at least the past 15 years. Mm. And no one's been monitoring what's been happening in the former Soviet Union. So what's happened is that slowly, one by one, some of the countries that were on on the USSR's 
radar have been flirting, if not joining NATO. Which means that the umbrella that used to be around the Soviet Union is shrinking closer and closer to the, the borders of the Soviet Union. But I come back to the question I asked earlier is, why was there still a need to have NATO? Mm-hmm. And you could argue, should England be, or should the United Kingdom be a part of NATO if a year and a half ago they left Europe? Because one of the aims of NATO is European harmony. There you go. But that didn't so. change. We didn't suddenly have NATO on our doorstep surrounding us, going into Ireland or somewhere, you know, and, and producing missiles aimed at, at the United Kingdom. So why was Russia having that? Russia is clearly no longer a communist state. And it hasn't been for a very long time. Mm. It's been a dictatorship, you could argue. You could, it's, it's, the democracy is broken down there, but then I'd argue that's also partly to do with the fact that the West ignoring them rather than helping them. But okay, yeah. It's like a say, protective measure. Yeah. yeah. So we've seen Putin take over and be reluctant to give up the reins of, of power. Yeah. And what he's and, done and, again... Go on. Well, what he's done again is he's systematically uh, ignored the West and done things like come to the United Kingdom and kill opposition leaders to him. Like his opposition leaders, when they're in the UK, he's killed them in the UK, along with innocent in, in English people. Hmm. And we've just ignored it. We've thought, oh, it's just been a bit silly here. You know, there's, there's a guy that's in prison that was poisoned that's in prison. There's another guy who got poisoned and died. And this all happened under his regime. They all agree. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. So what I'm saying to you is... Do you I, know think, I think that kind of put Salisbury on the map. <laughs> I think nobody really knew what, where the hell well, that well, was. Well, Stonehenge, Stonehenge is down that way. But um, the greatest, one of the world's greatest chess um, players stood against him in the election was de- was literally categorically denied access to hotels access to rooms to have meetings he was systematically blocked from he was even arrested Gary Karpov and he's a, 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 a big in the human rights organisation in Russia now because systematically he wasn't allowed to stand against Putin right. and all of this has been ignored and all it's done, instead of people coming and fighting for the rights of those people, instead they've just sharpened NATO's claws to go closer to Russia. Mm. It's worked twice against the people. A, because they haven't been supported in in challenging a dictator, but B, then enforcing an armed unit around the country. And some people would argue that Putin's last stand, so to speak, because he's been in power a lot longer than than constitutionally he was meant to be right okay his last stand is to try and show russians that the world is against them so they're not getting a full news story the news story they are getting is that the ukraine is is hostile to russian people living there which clearly they haven't been um and that nato is trying to close its borders closer and closer to the russian border mm. so it's it's handpicking the news so that it can explain to its own people why Putin is taking these measures. Yeah, 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 I've got you. Propaganda, wow. It's it's really... Um, see, this, this is one of the things for me that really does stand out about this conflict 
it it seems very multi-layered um we have the ever encroaching boundaries of nato creeping across europe towards russia um and that was that that from what i understood was a a verbal agreement that was made back in was it 86 or well, 2014, 2014, the agreement was uh, around the Ukraine because they wanted, at the yeah. time, Ukraine was thinking of, of joining um, NATO. And they, so the part of that agreement, I've got a feeling it's called the Warsaw Agreement, but part of that agreement was that Ukraine won't join NATO. And so whenever they look remotely like joining, Putin gets nervous because imagine having rockets literally on your doorstep. That's yeah. what you're thinking about. Yeah. So... So the agreement in 2014 was that, but but what happened was to get that was that Russia went into the Ukraine, forced got rid of the government that was there, forced to have a a, a puppet government, which was then voted out, and then the government that's come in replaced it. So Putin has had a real um, like he hasn't forgotten the fact that his puppet government was removed. Mm-hmm. Same thing, he tried the same thing in Georgia. He put a puppet government in, and again, they were removed. He, he hates that sort of thing, and he never forgets that sort of thing because it's important that he has friendly people in those positions. It's an old tactic from, from regimes in the communist times to put mm-hmm. puppet governments in place so that you will be threatened. Like, for example, Belarusia. Now, Belarusia has done absolutely everything Russia wants during this conflict because they are literally a puppet government. Mm-hmm. When I say public government, I don't mean the peoples of the country. I mean the actual people that are ruling that country are selected by the Kremlin. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that they tried to do it in the Ukraine. They tried to do it in Georgia. It hasn't worked in either. And Putin isn't going to forget that very quickly. Right. So that would explain the high levels of, of destruction that's happening at the moment this week. Is that It's not just about trying to put in place a public government to replace the one they've got there now, but it's also about destroying some of the best parts of the Ukraine culture and society that's been around for 20, 30 years because uh, we have forgotten what, what what they did as a people. Right. right. Anyone who knows anyone from Ukraine, you know, they're a very, very proud and patriotic people. So they're not going to take this lightly. But on the other hand, the weight of armaments, the weight of army is with the Russians. They've got arguably the second or third biggest army in the world. I mean, Ukraine doesn't mm-hmm. into the top 20. So, you know, you, you're literally looking at, you know, the tanks and planes versus pea shooters at the moment. My guess is what will happen is what always happens in these kind of conflicts is that, you know, once the big army leaves, they get hostility from from people doing um, insurgent, you know, like Free France type stuff. Street stuff. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, underground stuff so that, you know, yeah. they get, they, they become a pain in the backside for 10, 20 years of whoever is trying to run that country. That would be my guess because the other thing that's very clear is that the West is not prepared to get involved militarily. Mm. We had this bizarre situation yesterday in the House of Commons where they they applauded the ambassador from the Ukraine. And every time that any minister was asked what they're going to do to help the Ukraine, they would always go, and they've done this on TV interviews as well, they go, before I ask that question, let me first of all draw notice with great uh, sympathy and solidarity to the people of the Ukraine, what a tremendous 
battle they're mm-hmm. doing. That's how they're starting their answer. Even if you ask them what, what time it is in, 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 in the France, that, that will be the start of their answer. <laughs> if you ask them what they're actually doing, we haven't even frozen in the UK a tenth of the uh, assets of the oligarchs. What's, like, what's actually going on with that? Because, like, they were talking about, uh, what's his name? Dominic Raab, um, Foreign Secretary. He was talking about um, how they are freezing. Yeah, I'm sure it was this week. He was talking about how they're freezing assets and, and basically financially restricting and looking to put in sanctions and um, restrictions so they can't get access to the central bank. Um, okay, so I've seen yesterday as well that apparently Bitcoin is now worth more than the, the Russian ruble. Yes, it is. Um, but, but we have to remember, have to remember a few things. First of all, in Russia, when you go to a cash point, you can draw money out in dollars, uh, euros, or rubles. Just to let you know. Secondly, Russia has huge amounts of gold in reserve, and and during conflict, gold prices go up. And thirdly. What they're trying to do is exclude some of the banks of Russia from a, f- a thing called SWIFT, which is the sort of world banking sort of system. Yeah. But but I'm still saying to you that in the UK, many of the assets of the very wealthy Russian people has not been attacked, have not been stopped, have not been challenged. Mm. So what they've done is they've halted a number of banks, a number of individuals who were already being halted by the Americans. What they haven't done is do the ones who are supplying the Tories with money, who are in the House of Lords, who own a lot of property in the UK but have become so-called English by name. Mm-hmm. These people are allowed to carry on freely. And we take a case of, of Ramovich, you know, the owner of Chelsea. He was banned from coming to this country about four years ago. So he's just selling off Chelsea was the last asset that he has in this country. And he doesn't need to keep Chelsea. I mean, he, he's not in the country. He doesn't live here anymore. So the, they're picking on easy targets that aren't the real issue. So if you want to actually stop Putin, you've got to stop all the Russian wealth in, in the UK. Yeah. And then it's, it can stop tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not doing that. <laughs> because when push comes why, to the shovel... Why, look, why do you think they would do that? <laughs> well, I'm saying if they did do it, what would come out is how much money the Tories are getting from these Russians and how much money Donald Trump got from these Russians. And I'm sorry, you know, no one on that side of the political spectrum wants that to come out. Mm. So we're not playing with a straight bat here. We're not we're not prepared to open up all the doors to see what really is happening here because we don't want certain truths to come out. When we say we, I'm talking about the British government, not you and I. We'd happily yeah. open the doors and, and tell everyone. Of course, of course. Now, just saying, the incentive to do it properly isn't there. And this, this is really, really, like we're getting to. This is the history, the history of of this Europe, Europe, USSR, Soviet Union relations, and NATO's expansion. You can kind of understand and appreciate why you know Putin would be a bit twitchy at this point. Oh, 100%. Um, with, with Ukraine sort of threatening, I, I guess, perhaps, at the very but, least. But he's also um, a paranoid dictator. So, you know, what's the worst kind of a dictator you can find in the world is a paranoid one. Because mm. if they think everyone's out to get them, then they're suddenly, their, their empathy they're to anything out. else goes out the window. 
Yeah. 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 But I want to ask you a question. I mean, I've been thinking about this past couple of days, actually. If there was a war that attacked America or the or United Kingdom, and I don't know the answer to this question, I'm just going to ask it to you. And it looked like these governments were under a threat. Would you imagine Boris and um, Biden would stay in, in the White House or would they try and get out the country until it's resolved? And secondly, people like uh, Tyson Fury and and um, Anthony Joshua and, and uh, I don't know, the equivalent of David Beckham, whoever these people are today, would they stay and fight? Because what's happened in the Ukraine is but when they said, when the Americans said to the leader, the guy who's the ex-comedian who's now the president of the Ukraine, when they said to him, do you want us to get you out of the country, like they did with the leader of Afghanistan, he said, no, I don't want to run, I want weapons, and refused to leave. And he's doing press conferences every morning until they shoot him, which they invariably will. Wow. Um, and a lot of famous people, like two footballers have died already who went back to the Ukraine. And lots of people, famous boxers, for example, the guy that beat Anthony Joshua, and remember the two brothers, that, that the one who Joshua beat to, to uh, Klitschko brothers, they've all gone yeah. back to the fight. I mean, one of them is actually the mayor of uh, Kiev, what used to be called Kiev, Kiev. He's actually the mayor of that town. Well, these people are putting themselves in the front line. I just wonder how many UK and USA people would do that if the shoe was on the other foot. I'd love to think all of them, but I'm just saying it's, it's a good open question to show how much these people care about their own country, that they've gone back. They don't have to. They're millionaires. They could live in Hollywood, whatever, or in, you know, Knightsbridge. They wouldn't, they don't have to go back to the Ukraine and fight. They're doing it because they love their country. Wow. And, and this, this really is like that. I don't know. I call it like the multi-strand of the complex like this idea of loving your country so much that you're prepared to go and fight for it pick up arms and, and you know shoot people dead if the need would occur and this internal conflict that i feel forever with the idea of even it getting to this point in the first place what the fuck actually happened for it to get to this point well there you like, go historical context but then it's like are we not having did, did these are these people not talking to each other or something like well they had, they had the second meeting um today where they met on the border of belarusia um but i don't think they're singing from the same tunes i think what russia's demands are and what ukraine's demands are are quite different well, I'm sure Ukraine's first demand will be we'll get every Russian troop out of Ukraine and we can start talking. And I'm sure Russia's one is sign every agreement we want you to sign before we even leave. So I yeah. don't think they're even on a starting point. I don't think yeah. there's a common ground that you can go... Like, and so far, they've captured the whole Crimean region, uh, Russia. So they're sort of slowly working up from the south. They've conquered all of the bits of the south. And now they're surrounding the major cities. And there's a, we know, and we've been watching for a week, a, 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 a train of vehicles heading towards, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to call it Kiev because I can't remember how to say it now. That It's been going towards Kiev at, at roughly sort of 10 miles a day. And we're watching these sort of 40, 50 vehicles, tanks and everything heading towards Kiev. And no one's doing anything. So you're literally watching the destruction of a country stone by stone. And this is what I'm saying to you, why it's different, because we don't normally get these TV pictures. You would not see 
in the Second World War, the German tanks and planes going across Germany into Russia and trying to get their way down to Stalingrad on TV. Yeah. You, may be, you may get shots here and there from that time, but you wouldn't get the whole day-by-day journey. And I would hasten to say to you that we, we didn't see that in Syria. We did not see the, the advancement of armies in this way because journalists weren't going to stick themselves in places where they were going to get blown up. It, it seems like far too much of a... I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. I don't even know what to call it right now. If you think about it logically, we're going back to the Roman days where you used to have a... Um, the you theater. Know, the gladiators fighting in the in the forums. Yeah. And we, we on TV are the audiences and these people are the gladiators. You know, you, you know, the, the Russians are the bear and the and the uh, Ukrainians are the other citizens thrown in with a pea shooter to try and stop the bear. And we're you know, we're gonna watch day by day as buildings and people get flattened every day. What's it gonna take? Like no. what what so so for example, if they were to <laughs> form an agreement where before they left they met every one of russia's demands what are russia's demands what are they well first uh, of all the major one to not sign up for nato in the next 30 years okay well it's not okay because in a democracy you should, you're allowed to choose what you want to do <laughs> so it's not mm-hmm. okay let's start no, I, I get it but this is this is war right that these are i guess right, trying but, to wait, what you're saying, kind of avoid but what you're saying to ukraine citizen is you cannot choose who you can join and who you can join everyone right. everyone else in the world can yeah yes yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not actually taking sides here joanne i'm just saying yeah 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 no no totally. from a point of view of, of freedom and democracy now, however, however ill-informed your choices might be, like say, for example, a country decided with complete uh, lack of, of clarity and education to leave a union of countries in a common market to go out on their own and, and end up sanctioning themselves, they are allowed to do that because that's freedom and democracy and free choice. Wait, hold on, hold on. So he wanted the U- Wait, the Ukrainian part of the EU? No, they want okay. to be part of the EU. That's the, that's the issue. Okay, so they want to be part of the EU and they want to be part of NATO. Yes. In the process. Everyone wants to be part well, of that. Because, part of it, I guess. Everyone wants to be part of the EU because it's a big market for everyone to... Of course. Right? I can't think of many countries that don't want to be part of it. He left a suitable gap at that point. Anyway, so the point I'm trying to make is um, that's not what Russia wants because Russia still believes... Mm. Okay, so here's another misconception. A lot of people believe that Putin is trying to reform the old Soviet Union. That they believe that he's he doesn't want that, that these countries going over to the West because he wants to keep the Eastern Bloc in place. That's not where Putin's coming from. Putin has designs to create the Greater Russia that the Tsars used to have, right? And every country has these kind of ideologies of a time when they were the their empire was the biggest imagine like we're we talking about greece when greece had a great empire or the persians now they're, they're always going to be nationalists in those countries that want to recreate those times those like land wise and, and ownership wise so putin wants to go back to if you could get a map that the czars were looking at in the 18th century that's what he wants to recreate 
Uh, my, my personal belief is he doesn't want to go through the whole of the Ukraine. He wants to draw a line down the middle of it, take all the wheat and the and the oil, and have the boundary going all the way across Eastern Europe of where the Tsar would have had his lands. But that's you talk about that compared to a mm -hmm. modern-day Ukraine that wants to join a democratic Europe. Mm -hmm. So where's the starting point in that discussion? Mm. And ask you a question. <laughs> let me ask you a question as well, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this at the moment. If there was a war broke out in, let's say, Jamaica, could you see a yourself be famous footballers and boxers, etc., going there to fight to help Jamaica, given that that's their homeland? Wow. Because that's what's happening in Ukraine. People have left comfortable houses to go there and literally get pummeled because you know they're, they're the people i'm talking about are on the side that has the least amount of weapons and i can't well, struggle to think. another conflict where that's happened where faintly mm. famous of people have left their environment and gone back to their homeland or where the president, given up a, a choice to leave the country, has said, no, just give us more weapons. I'm struggling to name a conflict where that's happened. I just really am. <laughs> and, you know, it is a stark contrast to the Afghanistan puppet guy that the West put in, who, who couldn't wait to get out of the way, you know, was on the runway and dropping millions of pounds and left behind. Yeah. Because he to get out so quickly. <laughs> and there couldn't be a greater contrast. And then that led to the uh, the insurgency, the Taliban. What's actually going on with that now? Like that's just the Taliban offering to help the West with Russia now. <laughs> right. So you know what's what's been interesting, right? And I know this episode's kind of going on a little bit longer than oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Liked, but I think that you know just to kind of get this out, um, this the UN Security Council. Or the UN in general, right? Yeah, it yeah. seems like some big boys club, right? Um, the the Security Council consists of fifteen members. Five of those members are basically permanent. The rest of them change. They yeah, vote right. and yeah, yeah. change every now and then. Now, what's really interesting that I find is. It's, it includes America, France, the UK, Germany, and Russia. Yep. Now, my thing is, how does the UN actually allow this to happen? What do you mean? What do you want them to do? All of these countries, they're all in cahoots, right? So they're in this big committee that's supposed to be about securing, you know, the world. Right. Yeah. Um, so how how is this happening? How is this being allowed to happen? I don't because, get it. Because it's just a it's it's like a, it's like a parliament. They can't actually what they're going to actually do to stop it happening. What's their what would you suggest they do? What can they do? The United Nations. I think we're seeing how literally like what's, what what would be a, a good term to use? Spineless. Yeah, Maybe. Well, but they've always been spineless. I'm not sure why you're saying that. They've always been spineless. 
Right, the, so just to correct you, by the way, I thought I thought China was one. The permanent members are China, France, Russia, United Kingdom, and United States. Germany is not a permanent member. Ah, uh, that's the one. That's because per- Germany Thank was because, because of the Second World War. Ah, yes. Right, so the, the four, the five countries were on the side of, let's say, the winning side in the Second World War: China, France, Russia, United Kingdom, and United States. And say that again, please, just for all the listeners once again. Which bit do you want? That last bit that you just said. So the five permanent members are China, France, Russia, United Kingdom, and United States, and they're the ones who were on the winning side in the Second World War. Okay. And Japan okay. and Germany are not even in the non-permanent member side. <laughs> so countries like Ireland and Kenya would be ahead of them in that members list. But the point I'm trying to make to you is this. They don't have any great authority to do anything. For example, there isn't the United Nations Army. There's a United Nations mm-hmm. peacekeeping force, but there isn't the United Nations Army. So they don't have any great authority. They rely on the member states to act together. Now, they've, in my experience, they've only ever voted together twice in the history of them. Being, so they even they can't even make a decision together. So, I mean, let's not bleat too long about them. What I'm fascinated yeah. was yeah. Putin said that he wanted to attack... Ukraine because he considered it to be a fascist country. Right? That one of his reasons in the beginning was to attack it was he called it a fascist country. And it's led by a Jew. Okay, so there's this narrative coming up. I just think that's an interesting like lack of knowledge for, for, for Putin that I mean the Jews got destroyed in Eastern Europe. Uh when Eastern Europe collaborated some, sometimes with the Nazis. And here he's calling the Ukraine, which is led by Jew, a, a Nazi state. I mean, it's, it's just very woeful politic, I think, involved that. I, I don't get his, his way of thinking at all, but that's okay. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of misrepresentation in this. Uh-huh. Because because you, you think this doesn't have to be happening. This doesn't have to be happening. Uh-huh. But equally, you've got a bigger problem, which is even if it happened or not, how much longer will Putin stay in power in Russia? A. B. What would it take for him to not be in power? And C. What happens if you get a vacuum again? So then you end up with another um, Afghanistan situation. Exactly. And also on top of that, on top of that, you've, you've got to say that... that, that um, He's got nuclear weapons. Mm. Mm. Many countries. In fact, one of the agreements that Ukraine had in 2014 was to stop using the nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to help Russia to invade them because they know that Ukraine can't drop it. So where has the nuclear gone? Well, that's a different. Let's not get into that. That's a side issue. What I'm trying to say to you is, they will not. Russia's not afraid that Ukraine might bomb them back because they haven't got any bombs. So that's even more reason why the rest of the world should be doing something to help the Ukraine. And unfortunately, all we're getting is bluster and talk. You know, we're getting, for all the people like in America and in England who think that, you know, they're being led by the modern day Winston Churchills, there's no way Churchill would have sat back and watched this. No way. I'm no fan of Churchill, but I'm saying there's no way he would have sat back and watched this. No chance. Wow. So all the people that model themselves that say that they are the modern day Churchillian people, they're much more like Neville Chamberlain. They're sitting back and and finding excuses not to get involved. 
They clapped in the House of Parliament for like 15 minutes, this guy from the Ukraine. And when they were then asked what's going to happen, no one had an answer. Mm. It's um, very quickly become like, like yeah. It's, 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 it's a shithole. It's, 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 it's a shithole of a story. That's well, what it is. Yeah, but it's also showed the Achilles heel of the, of the, the Western nations. They talk yeah. a good talk, but when it comes down to doing something, like so, here's well, let's leave people with this comment. I'm going to leave this because it's a great place to leave it. Actually, mm. how far can Russia go before the West will get involved? And I don't just mean the Ukraine. I mean, yeah, yeah. Japan, which is a which is a, a, a UN nation, a, a UN. Uh, country covered country so all the countries that the un say they're going to monitor or be nato not even nato say they're going to protect such as poland if russia went into poland what would happen then don't forget the second world war started because germany went into poland just hypothesizing i guess well it's not just hypothesizing because one million ukrainians are now in poland It's not just hypothesizing, but, it, but the question has to be, how far can Putin go, given that he knows he's on his last legs, uh, politically? Mm. How far can he go before the West will say, buddy, that you've got, you've crossed a line we can't allow? Yeah. Because originally yeah. that line was Ukraine. And for people in the free world watching citizens being bombed to fuck with no one helping them, when they don't have anything close to the weaponry they need to combat the great Russian army. I mean, when is enough? It really is a... Uh, well, when is enough? Just a simple question. When is enough? Yeah. I mean, what do you have to see to say, fuck this, we're going to have to get involved now? And I'm not I'm not an advocate of war. I'm just saying, you know, uh, how much do you allow the everything that you felt yeah. as valuable it's in your world? You stand up and actually stand yeah, yeah, up, yeah, yeah. come to yeah. the table, or actually, you know. Yep. I'm just but asking. Yeah. You're asking these questions on Curious Anarchy, Jermaine, because the media aren't asking these questions. This is not something that looks interested in asking. So we have to ask these questions. If we go out to people, they have to be asking these questions. How long will your governments, wherever you're listening to this, allow this to carry on? Mm. Mm. Is this a uh, a threat to just Ukraine, or is it a threat to Europe, or is it a threat to the world? Yeah, well summed up. Absolutely right. I think that there's uh, definitely, a, you know, this again, this humanity aspect of it that comes into this why are we coordinating or at least sort of vaguely attempting to coordinate over covid but yet this situation is again another variant of a virus that humanity experiences the other question is jermaine and we have to ask this one as well to be to to be even-handed about this Hmm. we know that the united states have gone into a number of countries to so-called alleviate the the lack of democracy Mm. How many has Russia ever gone into? How many? Have Russia ever gone into before they went into Ukraine? In terms of when you see the United States have gone into Iraq and, and Libya and what have you. How yeah. many countries have Russia gone into? Mm. Mm. So we have to we have to have balance in the way we're discussing this. Totally. You know, in terms of being what used to be called an imperialist force, 
America has done far more imperialism over the way they've, they've solved conflicts or created conflicts, whichever way you want to look at it, around the globe. This Absolutely. has been the first time Russia's done it. So Russia would say, you owe us, because we've allowed you to do it tons of times. And to this day, many of those um, conflicts that began are still being harassed, bombed. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the question is, for the freedom-loving people of the world, when is too much? And on that note, we're going to end right there. This has been Curious News. And actually, we're going to call this one Mass Paranoia. Woo, woo. Yeah, let's go in with that one. Um, Paranoia, or is it just me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is it? That's the question. Yeah. Good question. Probably the best question i <laughs> today. <laughs> um, I think that we're all going through something. Wow. Okay, cool. So, this has been um, the main, this has been a, a really interesting exploration. Just kind of looking at history and, and looking at what's going on today and how the two are interrelated. This is not a straightforward thing. It's not a, well, you stop doing this and that, that like, there's, there's so much involvement around the back end, especially. Um, that weaves this whole net together. It's like a safety net that we've created almost. Um, but yeah, Mark, any final, final thoughts? Just when you said that, it just made me think it's like a safety net with holes in it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that for today. It's a Curious News on the Curious Anarchy podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs>